0: Hear the word of God from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. You can follow along in your own Bible or on the screen. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to bow, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning church. Good morning. morning. My name is Eric Weiner. I am the youth pastor here at Waypoint Church and I truly believe I have one of the best jobs around. I mean our youth are incredible and we have some of the most amazing volunteers who work with us. I mean some of the best people you could ever work in ministry with. Next week, our our youth will actually be taking part in in leading the service as they share more about the mission trip we went on this past July to Panama City, Florida. So come back next week and and see for yourself just how amazing these youth are. Over the past few months, over the summer months, we, we have been in our summer series called God is Working Behind the Scenes. And for the bulk of this series, we have walked through the book of Esther which is the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned by name once. But we said this is clearly done on purpose because in every significant moment in the story, we can clearly point to the providential hand of God at work. I think what has resonated with me most from this series is that it's very easy to feel like God is not with us because we, we don't readily see what he is at work to do in our daily lives. Of course, our feelings shouldn't dictate what we really think and believe. But the sentiment that God doesn't feel near is actually communicating that we don't always see what God is actually doing in our world, let alone our own lives. After finishing Esther, we have also bounced around the Old Testament to show other places where God has been at work behind the scenes. We've looked at Hannah and Samuel and King Josiah, And this week, we are ending our series with the prophet Elijah. Now, as we jump into this text this morning, I I have three questions I want us to consider. First, why is Elijah moved to fear? Why is Elijah afraid? Second, what is God's response to Elijah? Elijah's fear has led him to forget his theology and God's voice altogether. So, how will God respond to this? How will he react to his prophet? And then, three, what is your response to God? How how should we respond to what God is doing here? How does this affect us? I believe the answers to these questions will go a long way in showing us what God is at work to do here. But it's going to require really pulling back the curtains to gain a fuller picture. So, let's get started. First, why is Elijah moved to fear? This seems straightforward enough, right? I mean, it says it right there in verse 2. Jezebel sent a clear message. Elijah, I'm going to end you. Now, growing up in the South, and I don't know if this is a Southern thing or not, but when one of her kids had done something very, very wrong, which was usually me, my mom would say, I brought you into this world, and I'm not afraid to take you out of it anybody ever heard that before? Now the, the women in the room know that is a legit threat. That's for real. And the men in the room, or any child for that matter, should, that should give you pause, right? But the words from Jezebel are on another level. And even still, that is not why Elijah is afraid. So let me take a few seconds to situate us into this story because the last thing we need are weak answers to hard questions. So back up with me to chapter 18. And the Lord has sent Elijah to finally confront Ahab. Now what I want you to know about Ahab is what God wants you to know about Ahab, which is that he did more to provoke the Lord to anger than any other kings before him. Now Ahab has been looking for Elijah to no avail because of a drought that he has prayed over the land. Elijah has prayed for a drought over the land, and Ahab is concerned. It's, it's, cost, it's economic disaster. All the while, Jezebel, Ahab's Sidonian queen, has been killing God's prophets left and right. 1 Kings 18.4 tells us that Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord. So she has a track record for wicked acts against God's prophets. And Jezebel is as devoted to the worship of Baal as Elijah is to the Lord. One commentator says of Jezebel that her success has moved Israel beyond tolerance of high places and syncretism to outright worship of another god. To outright worship of another god. So what has made Jezebel so mad? I mean at the beginning of, of chapter 19 she is very angry. Well, in the very next section, Elijah challenges 450 prophets of Baal to, to a duel. Elijah says, you, you take one bull and I'll take the other. You build an altar, I'll build mine. You make a sacrifice to your God and I'll make a sacrifice to the Lord. And whoever answers by fire is the one true God. Now that's a bold statement, right? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't Elijah like first talk to God, run this by him? Like, hey, are you good, you good on the fire thing? But this is the moment Elijah's been waiting for because his prophetic ministry has coincided at a time in Israel's history where religious idolatry and covenant infidelity are rampant. So if the people of Israel and King Ahab in attendance, Elijah is ready for God to bring about a spiritual awakening, he wants them to wake up to to the reality that they've been worshiping the wrong God. Yahweh is the one true God. And after hours of panting and calling upon the name of their God, Elijah even begins trash-talking the other prophets. M- maybe you should yell a little louder. I think he's, uh, I think he's sleeping on you. Oh, oh, hey, hey, I know. Maybe he's relieving himself. Those are Elijah's words, not mine. I mean, that's some holy disrespect. Elijah then proceeds by having his bull doused in water before he calls on the Lord who rains down fires from the heaven. Now, the wording recorded in the moment just before Elijah's greatest victory, and to this point, maybe one of the most extravagant divine displays against idolatry in the entire Old Testament, is important. Elijah utters these words in 1 Kings 18.37. He says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back, and that you have turned their hearts back. That, the, the reigning of fire, that is what Elijah thinks has been accomplished. Spiritual revival. This is it. I mean, in Elijah's mind, he's done it. This was his top of the world kind of experience. His ministry is going to conclude with a massive revival for Israel. He prays for rain after this, and then the rain comes. The drought's over. The Lord provides. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord hears and answers all the faithful who call upon his name. As I look out among you this morning, I see people with great hopes and dreams for their lives. Desires that your hearts long to see fulfilled in your lifetime, right? Good things, I'm sure. Many glorious and God-honoring aspirations. I want to encourage you strive for those things, brothers and sisters. But what if God says, no, or not like that? Do your dreams have to be accomplished according to your plans? Will you allow God to be God, or have you tried to put him in a box? Elijah thought the events at Mount Carmel were his Super Bowl victory, but really it was his rumble in the jungle. George Foreman, before he was selling grills, was once the undefeated world heavyweight boxing champion. And in 1974 he squared off in the ring against the former great Muhammad Ali in what was dubbed the rumble in the jungle. Foreman was in the prime of his career and Ali was old and fading. At 6'3, 220, that's not somebody you want to dance with. And for a large portion of the fight Foreman lived up to the billing. At least that was the perception. But Ali employed a tactic called rope-a-dope. The idea is that you pretend to be trapped against the ropes as you provoke your opponent to throw tiring, ineffective punches. And according to Foreman, after the fight he said, I thought he was just one more knockout victim until about the seventh round. I hit him hard to the jaw, and he held me and whispered in my ear, That all you got, George? I realized that this ain't what I thought it was. For Elijah, this moment at Mount Carmel wasn't what he thought it was. If Elijah were a humanitarian, he would have just solved the issue of world peace, and it has produced no substantial change at all. Do you ever feel like that? Like the work you are doing doesn't matter? That it has no lasting impact? or if you're even doing what God wants you to do, if you ever felt like that. Well, but let me also ask you this. Do you know the promises of God? Are you willing to trust God even in hard circumstances and even when you don't know what the outcome will be or that the outcome will be what you want at all? Can you walk by faith and not by sight? The present realities of this world are passing away. And the glorious reality that God is making all things new is no less true. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But for Elijah, Ahab and Jezebel are still in control. And the heart of Israel has not turned back to the Lord. So again, I ask you, why is Elijah moved to fear? Jezebel's story checks out. She is everything she threatens to be and more. So Elijah being fearful of her threat makes total sense. I mean, self-preservation is a powerful motivator. Do I want to jump out of a plane? No. Do I want to go bungee jumping off of a cliff? cliff? Absolutely not. Why? Because I enjoy living, right? <laughs> but the option that, that this, is, this is why he's afraid, because of Jezebel's threats, actually breaks down very quickly in verse 4. So let's do a little more prodding here. So so Pastor Tim Keller makes the observation that that Elijah travels with a servant. It says this in verse 3. Elijah is traveling with a servant, not out of wealth, but out of ministry necessity. So when it says in verse 3 that Elijah left his servant to go into the wilderness, we can interpret that as the beginning of his ministry resignation. Elijah is saying, in effect, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And then Elijah says in verse 4, take away my life. He wants to die, which is not something we would expect from someone who is running for his life. It's also not something we would expect from someone who, a few short verses ago, was talking some holy smack. I mean, is this even the same guy? So why is Elijah moved to fear? Why is he despondent and desiring to quit his ministry altogether? Well, we finally get our answer in the rest of verse 4. And here in verse 4, Elijah says, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah's saying that he is no better than his father's is his admission that his life's work is all vanity. It's all waste. Elijah has reached the pinnacle of his prophetic ministry. He is maxed out, and at the precipice of his human achievement, he has looked out and felt deeply unsatisfied because he now realizes that his best is not enough. After great triumph, Elijah finds himself spiraling into despair because he has now come to the realization that his best efforts could not bring the nation of Israel to turn to God, which is what he so desperately wanted, a good aspiration. And the reason why any of us would feel like this is twofold. First, we have limited expectations for what we think God is able to do. We have limited expectations for what we think God is able to do. Meaning God is not who we thought he was. Second, we think the results are up to us. Meaning I take responsibility for doing what only God is able to do. And that only ever leads to hopelessness. That can only lead to hopelessness. So like the author of Ecclesiastes, the logic concludes, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. Elijah has come to the conclusion that his best is not enough, the good thing that he desires most will not come, and the God whom he has been following has let him down. That is why Elijah is afraid. Elijah has put God in a box. Let's be clear on one thing, though. God has not let Elijah down. Elijah put God in a box and said, God can only be God if he is like this, if he is like how I understand him to be. But a God of your understanding is no God at all. No. God has not let Elijah down. Elijah's limited version of God has let Elijah down. And we are not as far off from Elijah as we think. Maybe when we signed up to do the Lord's work, we thought that literally meant if God is going to get anything done in this world, we're going to have to be the ones to do it. Maybe we feel so discouraged when our holy ambitions don't go as planned because we've forgotten who's really in control. God is not some butler who's trying to cater to your every need, but he is trying to draw you in to trust him. To walk in faith, even when circumstances aren't exactly what you thought they'd be. He works in ways that we do not understand, and we are maturing every time we choose to say, Oh God, okay God, even in this I will trust you. Even in this I will trust you. Second, what is God's response to Elijah? How will God prove himself to be God? In my brief stint as a counselor, it took me a while to learn to read between the lines. If you've ever been to to formal counseling, then you know before your first meeting, you fill out intake forms. And on that form, you provide background information. You know, you you explain some of the, the issues going on, what you've done about it, who you've talked to, past counseling history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what many counselees don't realize is that that is the only information, what you put down on that form, That's the only information your counselor knows about you before you enter that room. I mean, I'd I'd have people come in and start dumping on me like I knew everything about the past year of their lives. And I'm just like, hold on, Let's, let's back up for a second. I want to understand what's going on here. Help me understand. But what it took me even longer to learn was that what people write on those intake forms still need interpreting. Because many people who come into counseling know that they have a problem. And they think all the symptoms are the problem. But they don't really know what the problem is. And until you start diagnosing that, whatever that is, you're only applying Band-Aids. So when we turn to Elijah, again, this this despondent man who who is spiraling, wants to throw his ministry out. What in the world do we say to someone as despondent and hopeless and restless as he is? Praise the Lord that he is the best counselor who knows his heart better than Elijah himself. Now, is Elijah's problem a spiritual issue? Is it a a psychological issue? Is it a, a physical issue? It's hard to separate, isn't it? Because people are complex beings, and believing a lie doesn't usually stay neatly in the category of spiritual issue. It would be easier if that was the case, but it often bleeds into the other two. And the basics of Elijah's dilemma are actually more common to human experience than you might think. I mean, we're all at once living in the balance of what is known and what is unknown. We talk to each other about this all the time. I mean, we're like broken records playing the same song over and over, and our stories only change as new details are discovered. This is my current life circumstance. This is what I'm working towards. Here are the unknown factors that I need to figure out. We'll see what God does. I mean, that's all of us to a point. We all have this sense that life must have some direction it's going in. I don't know where it's going. I trust that God knows. God knows. Elijah was certain he knew where his life was going. Now he's come to believe that everything in life up to this point has come up empty. And God knows that, which is why he takes a more nuanced approach. I mean, we we might say, Elijah, you need to pray more. You need to remember God's word more. And God could say that. He would have reason to say that. I mean, look at this. Up to this point in Elijah's ministry, all of his geographic moves have been in direct response to God's voice. That would be a dream, right? God literally tells Elijah where to go and what to do, and Elijah goes and does it. We would love that. Let me read a couple of these to you to show this. So, so this is 1 Kings 17, 2 and 3. And the word of the Lord came to him: depart from here and turn eastward. And then in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath. And then in 18.1, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab. You get the idea, right? And the reason why that is significant is because when Elijah flees Jezreel, it is not because of a direct command from the Lord. In fact, the word of the Lord doesn't come to Elijah again in chapter 19 until verse 9. This is saying the obvious at this point, but Elijah is living and acting in wrong belief. His theology and understanding of God's promises have gone by the wayside. Yet God addresses his physical needs first. Elijah doesn't need immediate rebuke, that wouldn't even be helpful at this point. He needs food and rest. Are you getting enough rest? Do you trust that the Lord is still active and working in your life, even in your rest? When's the last time you took a nap? Or took a break? The world you live in will not fall apart without you. So rest. Second, after his rest, Elijah journeyed to Mount Oreb, which is another name for Sinai. Sinai is the mountain where God met with Moses. Moses. It's a significant meeting place. And somehow, from the angel of the Lord's visit, Elijah gets the picture that God wants to meet with him. Elijah has been asking, God, how will you show yourself to still be God? So God says, come see. Come meet with me. I'll meet with you. And in verse 9, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah asking, what are you doing here, Elijah. Now, typically you ask a question because you want to learn new information. There's something that you don't yet know. But that's not what God's doing here. And God doesn't even do that. I mean, God asks questions all the time. If that were the case, that God wouldn't ask questions. God wants Elijah to see his own wrong belief. He's trying to mirror this before him. Because when lies are accepted as true, life begins to feel so disorienting. And Elijah's life is so disoriented. Can you find the lie in in Elijah's response to God? God asks Elijah the same question twice, and Elijah gets the same response in verses 10 and 14. So let's take this bit by bit. So Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. That is true. Elijah has performed many miracles. He's prayed for a season of drought and then for rain, all to show that Yahweh is control of the seasons. Elijah has called out the corrupt rule of Ahab and Jezebel, and he staunchly opposed bell worship in Israel. Elijah has been jealous for God's favor among Israel. That's true. 100% true. Then Elijah says, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. Again, All true. The people of Israel have gone the way of Ahab. They've embraced bill worship. Altars erected for the worship of the one true God have been torn down. And Jezebel has been ordering the killing of God's prophets. True. Then Elijah says, And I, even I only, am left. And they seek to take it away. Wrong, Elijah. One lie in a myriad of true statements Can you believe that? I can. I mean, that's how the most dangerous lies work. That's what makes them believable. Yes, Jezebel has threatened the life of Elijah. That's true. But he's not the only one left. And Elijah should actually know that. All this time, Elijah has been longing for revival when God is trying to show him that he preserves a remnant. At some point, Elijah stopped believing that. He stopped believing that God would be true to his word. Elijah has not allowed space for God to be active in his world. Outside of Elijah's limited categories is the possibility that God could be working without Elijah's involvement to preserve a remnant, which verse 18 tells us he has done, he will do. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God is trying to teach Elijah that his plan is not an overnight overhaul of the political system. Rather, he's going to slowly overthrow Israel's religious and political climate through an ordinary political process. He's going to do it in the ordinary mundane. But Elijah is resistant to hearing God's word. God calls Elijah to go out on the mountain. A similar moment happens with Moses in Exodus 33. Moses says on Mount Sinai, God, I want to know who you really are. I want to see your glory. Same place as Elijah. And God tells Moses, get in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by you. But to Elijah, God says in verse 11, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Because he's trying to show Elijah, you are not before me. You're not in the place you think you are, Elijah. But Elijah doesn't go out on the mountain. We know that because after the wind, the earthquake, the fire, and whisper passed by, Elijah is said in verse 13 to have wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. If he's just going out, the moments pass by him. And when you have a cloak wrapped around your face, it's kind of hard to see, right? And that seems to be what's implied here. That's what's going on. The Lord asks Elijah again, what are you doing here, Elijah? To which Elijah re- replies with no change at all. I mean, th- this moment, it seemed to pass him by, which isn't what we would have expected. I mean, you would think the correction of the Lord would produce a, a change of heart in Elijah. A new perspective, a renewed vision, something. But Elijah's response is surprisingly cold. So God says, Okay, Elijah, you're done. Your prophetic ministry is over. The job I have for you now is to prepare the way for those who will listen to my voice and fulfill the plans that I have. Meaning, Elijah's greatest life aspirations. Will not only not be accomplished by him, but he won't even see them accomplished in his lifetime. But they will be accomplished. God does here what only God can do. He pulls back the curtain to show Elijah and us what he is at work to do. He says to Elijah, Elijah you want bells and whistles. You want things to always work like Mount Carmel. You want an overnight revival, but my timeline is different, and my ways are different, and I plan to do things according to my ways, not yours. The text says that that God wasn't in the wind or the earthquake or the fire, but if we read the the rest of Scripture, we, we know that God clearly does work by these other means. I mean, he was in the fire at Mount Carmel, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, when what came from heaven? A sound like a, like a mighty rushing wind. When Israel, re- when, when Israel received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, there was thunder and lightning and trumpet blasts. At Jesus' death, Matthew records that the earth shook and the rocks split. Sounds like an earthquake. So it's not that God can't or doesn't work by these other means. But what God is trying to reveal to Elijah is that the way he is choosing to operate in this moment is slow and methodical. He wants to address Elijah's wrong belief with the certainty of his word and the fullness of his plan. So third, what what is our response to God? What hope do we have in light of this passage? What courage do we gain by knowing God is working behind the scenes in our lives right now? Maybe some of you this morning are feeling as broken and hopeless and desperate as Elijah. I mean, what circumstances are you walking in right now that you just don't want to deal with anymore? Watch this. There's a pattern at work here in Scripture, and the pattern looks like this. Wilderness, preparatory voice, salvation come. Wilderness, preparatory voice, salvation come. Wilderness is symbolic in scripture for being a place away from God. And we need someone to enter into our wilderness to lead us out. It is now Elijah's job to prepare the way for others to do the Lord's work. The Lord calls Elijah to walk in faithfulness by returning to Jezreel and along the way, stopping in the wilderness of Damascus to call Elisha. Moses led the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, and yet, in his anger, was not allowed to enter the promised land. God shelved him too. He said, Prepare the way for your successor, Joshua, whose name means Yahweh saves. Joshua's name means Yahweh saves, the one who follows Moses. Now, God has shelved Elijah. Interestingly, the name Elisha, Elijah's successor, means God saves. Fast forward again several hundred years, and John the Baptist is said to come in the spirit of Elijah. And his greatest ministry is to prepare the way for the even greater Joshua and Elisha. Jesus, whose name means Yahweh saves. Jesus is the one who brings us into the true land of rest. He is the one who breaks the powers of sin and darkness. And at one moment in the life of Jesus' ministry, he brings three of his disciples up on the mountaintop where the full glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus. We know this moment as the transfiguration. And who is able to talk with him face to face? Moses and Elijah in the promised land, in glorified bodies are able to see the fullness of God revealed in the sun without fear. You see God is working behind the scenes to reveal to us that his plans are far better than anything we could ever dream of. I am certain that we are all walking through present visible realities right now that we can look at and point out areas of sin and brokenness. I mean these things even keep us up at night. But I believe God is calling us to step into these places of tension today in faith. As we say, God, I know you are making all things right again. This is not right. I don't even see how it will ever be right. But even in this, I will trust you. Open hands, heart towards you. I will follow you. And we can say that with the same boldness as Elijah prayed, because of what God has already accomplished for us. Even over this sin-crazed world, we can say that Jesus is alive and in control. God has plans to bring us into perfect union with himself through the glorious work of his son, Jesus. He calls for us to continue walking faithfully in the unknown, trusting that the invisible realities of this world, that God's hand is perfectly over, Will one day be brought fully into sight. If we take God at his word, then we can trust that the realities revealed in the scriptures are coming to pass because God's word does not come back empty. Our expectations and plans may not always match the ways that God intends to do things in our lives, and we may not even be afforded the luxury of God pulling back the curtain to show us all that he is doing. But he does call us to trust him. He has been working up to this point, and he's not done yet. So I invite you today, in whatever battle you're stepping back into once you leave this place, will you trust him? We all would love to see what God is doing, right? We all wish it was was more obvious. Will you trust him? Will you seek his voice through his word? Will you choose to believe that God's kingdom will reign on earth as it is in heaven? Let us pray. Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. We are so desperate for you and long for your coming. But as we wait, would you give us eyes to see your hand of salvation? Lord, would you help us set our sights on the glorious things unseen? And would you help us to walk in faith as we look to you for our salvation? Prepare our hearts as we come to the table this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.